Good morning. Welcome to Bible study this morning. So glad to have you here with us as we uh, finish up enjoying some wonderful coffee and donuts and orange juice uh, on this wonderful, humid Midwestern summer day. It's nice and nice and humid out there today. Yes, yeah, very sticky. <laughs> A few uh, just quick announcements before we begin. There are handouts. Uh, on the back bench over by the Bible. So if you'd like to take one of the sheets just to make notes in, or if you brought uh, your own little notebook to make notes in, that's perfect. If not, you're more than welcome to use your phone or whichever um, Bible that you may have brought with you this morning. Um, also, in addition to those uh, we welcome here in the gym, we welcome all those listening in the St. Louis area on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. We continue in our study of Luke, uh, and uh, jokingly, uh, Bud, you just mentioned to me, you hope we get through chapter one, and I do as well. Yeah, get to chapter two, get through chapter one. Uh, but it's been, a, I think, a fantastic study thus far, even if it's been a little bit maybe uh, more meticulous than uh, we originally planned, but I think it's a wonderful thing to dive deeply into God's word, and especially into this gospel and, and what it brings. Uh, one interesting thing about uh, Today's study is that we're going to be going through, hopefully, the goal is, to get through the readings for Christmas Eve, which is, of course, almost exactly six months to the day from today. So we are halfway to Christmas. For those of you who get excited about those sort of things, and um, we are halfway to Christmas, and it is an exciting uh, time for sure. All right, so Pastor Thomas last week got through, I had that he got through verse 75, so we'll pick up and you'll see on the handout the, the stuff that he covered in the Benedictus that is uh, smaller and italicized there on your handout. And so we'll start with verse 76. And again, remember, this is Zechariah's prophecy. This is what he is saying will come to be about his son, John the Baptist. So starting at Luke 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now again, that word appears there, the Most High. Does that, does it, can anyone remember the last time we, or it was a couple weeks ago, but when that was used last by an angel of the Lord? A discussion on the Most High? It, yes, the angel Gabriel said that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that Jesus will be called the Son of God. And so who will John the Baptist be called? Not the Son of God, but the prophet of God. The prophet of the Most High. It's kind of a brief description of who John is. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn back to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi, or as one uh, very influential professor at the seminary uh, who I appreciated greatly told me. It's Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, but you can go to Malachi, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where we read that, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Very directly, Zechariah uh, prophesies, makes it understood that John the Baptist is the one who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. The one who is told to come before God himself comes to his temple. The Lord you are waiting for. And the you there is the people of God. The Lord, the people of God are waiting for. First comes this one who prepares his way, who makes straight his path. 
in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You know, it's pretty interesting right there in Luke 1, we're told very directly what the purpose of not only the prophet of the Most High, what's the purpose of the proclamation of the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, to proclaim the forgiveness of their sins. And again, if you would turn with me all the way back to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, you have your phone, it might be, it's probably a little quicker that way, but we'll, we'll be jumping around just a little bit today. You go to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, I, I wanted to point something out that Luke uses, but it's used elsewhere throughout the Bible, and that's the equation of knowledge to faith. That when he says, uh, when Zechariah says that John the Baptist will come to give the knowledge of salvation to his people, it is not just some head knowledge, <laughs> but there's a deeper Understanding. There's an internalization, there's a belief, there's a faith component to this idea of knowledge or understanding. And in Proverbs 1, verse 7, it's a very well-known verse, we see a very similar construction used by Solomon. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I think one thing that we may struggle with, especially in the 21st century, is too often we can separate out things like wisdom from faith or wisdom from the knowledge of God. We are reminded there is not wisdom without knowing who God is. There is not knowledge, there is not a true understanding of this world that God has made without knowing who the Creator is and what He's done for us. And so you have the same idea in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist is coming to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of of their sins. In verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. It's interesting, that word tender mercy, this is one of those phrases that gives translators fits, because quite literally, it's the inner bowels of God's mercy. <laughs> Rather than translate it, you know, <laughs> because of the intestines of mercy that exist in our God, or something like that, um, they appropriately translate it tender mercy. But the point of it is that this is part of God's true being, his inmost being. Another way to translate this might be that he has a heart of mercy. That it is because of the heart, the heart of mercy of our God, uh, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now that sunrise is interesting. Can anyone think of uh, a, dis a discussion of the sun, the S-U-N, in any of our Christmas hymns. There's one hymn in particular I'm thinking of that discusses this concept, which is also in Malachi as well. It, it, it plays off this. Let's hark the herald angels sing. All hail the Son of Righteousness. That is not S-O-N. If you look at the hymnal, if you look at uh, the... Uh, the I, when I was a kid, I thought it was a misprint. Hey, no one caught this. It's S-U-N, you know? Uh, yeah, boy, some editor's got to be really upset with themselves. No, it is supposed to be S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. This idea that uh, the coming Messiah, uh, in some ways it's unfortunate that in English our word for a male child is S-O-N because it makes it a little bit convoluted here. In, in Hebrew, it's a, two very different words, so it's very clear that it's not talking, you know, it's not a, there wasn't a misspelling. No one forgot to, you know, circle the O or something like that. But it's talking about this concept of a son 
of righteousness, that the sun, S-U-N, will rise with healing in its wings. And oftentimes in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sun was depicted with wings. Because how else could they understand that the sun rose and then flew across the sky seemingly and then set? Um, so that's, again, another connection. We're, we're going to have a lot of Christmas connections today, so we'll see if, how many we can keep track of. But it's another connection I thought of immediately, even though it's not in the uh, Christmas account yet, but even in this Benedictus um, of imagery that we celebrate during the Christmas and Advent season. And, and what does that sun do? Well, it's to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Uh, it's interesting there that to, what, what's, it, what's the foil to the sun is absolute darkness. And again, we see this time and time again. This is very popular in, for example, uh, Johannine literature with the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and even the book of Revelation that uh, to not know who God is is to be in the dark. To be one who is sinful is to be in the shadow of death or in the shadow of Sheol in the Hebrew. If you're in church this morning at, at 8 o'clock, you'll see that the psalm of the day, Psalm 30, mentions that very directly. David cries out about not wanting to go down to the pit of Sheol, this pit, the shadow of death, this dark place. And so right away you have the, the two contrasting images that are existent um, even here in Luke, that to know Jesus, to know, um, and even to be the one to prepare his way is to bring light. To be the one to prepare the way of God's salvation is the one to prepare the way of light. To not know that is to dwell in darkness. Uh, and we see that also, in I said, in the Gospel of John, and I... Let's turn to John 1. It's not too far. It's not as far as Proverbs, so it won't take us as long. But John 1, verses 4 and 5, where John himself even says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, Again, you cannot stress enough what it means to not know God's salvation in Jesus. You do not have knowledge. You do not have wisdom. You do not have light. You are in darkness. You are in the shadow of death. And that's where God's people were without their Savior. And that's where we are without our Savior. Now, of course, we rejoice in the fact that we do know our our Savior. Uh, We continue into verse 80, uh, which is just the little conclusion to chapter 1. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, of course, remember, this child is John the Baptist. We're not talking about Jesus here in in chapter 1. At the end of it, we're talking about John the Baptist. So if you go back to the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, I told you, bouncing around a little bit today. We already read from Malachi that there would be one to come to prepare the way of the Lord. But if you turn back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read, Isaiah prophesy, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert highway, a, in the desert a highway for our God. 
Again, this is not a new thing. When Zechariah says this, he is making direct reference to the prophetic words of God in the Old Testament about the coming of salvation. Zechariah understood very directly what it meant that his son was this one who prepared the way of the Lord. And so, again, it's a, a, a tremendous... Um, you, you have to imagine from a father's perspective, not only, remember, Zechariah and his wife were what? Barren. Him and Elizabeth were barren. And to go from being barren to your offspring, not only being an offspring, as Abraham had, and, um, but to be the one to prepare the way of the Lord, you can imagine just the sheer joy that's in Zechariah's uh, heart, in his mind. And so it makes sense, if we go back to the top, to 68, the start of it, that he starts with, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. All right, any questions on the end of chapter 1 there before we dive into probably some very familiar words in Luke chapter 2? All right, let's dive into the Christmas account. Does anyone want to try it from memory? No? Okay. (laughs) In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So just, we're going to address it, I would call it an elephant in the room, a a, a quote-unquote problem, and I think there are several good ways to address it. Um, But first, let's just be clear about what this was. This was a decree by the emperor to have people go to be counted for the purpose not only of taxation, but to keep track of who was in the Roman Empire. You know, there, there wasn't a nice online database where you could go and check your name. Right? They had to do things the old-fashioned way. Uh, maybe it doesn't seem too old-fashioned to some of us, but they had to go to be counted, to keep track. The Roman Empire required this, and most people believe it was about once every 14 years that this was required. And then we get to our problem, which was, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius was not governor of Syria until about 6 AD. In the official sense. And we're going to go through three ways that some uh, commentators and and those who are much more well-versed in not only the Greek language, but also um, the history of the ancient Near East at this time, uh, address why it is phrased in the way that it is. So one option is that when it says the first registration, that word in Greek, the protos, is not not acting in the sense of, uh, I guess what would that be? It's acting adverbally, so that it's before. It's not as in this is the first during, but this is the registration, the census, the time to go get counted before Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of an odd point. Why don't you just say, you know, when, whoever was the governor at the time? Well, one reason for that is that uh, Quirinius was quite important. He annexed Judea. There are a lot of things he did for the Judean people. And so if Luke is writing this in the first century, it's a pretty significant uh, individual in the history, even though he's Roman, in the history of uh, 
the Jewish people. Another option to this conundrum um, as to why Quirinius, it's mentioned Quirinius um, is governor of Syria, is that before he became the official governor, he acted as such, that he exhibited political or even military power in the manner of a governor before he was officially placed over the area as governor. Uh, Jeff Gibbs, who's a professor at the seminary, uh, he ad advocates uh, this position a little bit um, as well in his, his commentary. Um, and I thought it was pretty, a pretty good point that you would acknowledge um, when does someone take power? It's not always the official date, but sometimes it's when they're practically acting in power. Uh, and then the third way that this uh, is addressed by commentators is that this first registration is comparative to one that took place during the, the reign of uh, Quirinius. So that you have this first registration, this big one, before that census that took place during the time of Quirinius. Now, all these things um, are to say we don't exactly know. We can admit that. We don't exactly know what specifically is meant by it saying that this is the first registration um, while or during the reign of Quirinius. Yes. Well, oh, that's, a, that's a great point, Paul. So the, the comment was made, there's also the possibility that the dates, the dates we have understood um, that Quirinius was ruling in Syria are wrong. And in fact, we have another example of that from Acts chapter 18. Oh, okay. So in the reverse, yeah, that the common understanding that Jesus was born in 4 BC, again, we think that's a, that's a best estimate, right? Yeah, no, that is, that is correct. That there, there is a lot of, with antiquity, there is some ambiguity, ambiguity, uh, it's some ambiguity? Ambiguity. There we go. There we go. Fourth time's the charm. Ambiguity um, on some of these dates. It's not like they had a, you know, a text message to go back to from July 12th of 2017 to say, oh, that's the exact day I found that out, or the exact, exact day that so-and-so took over. Now, in some cases, we do have very specific dates, but in other cases, we do not. Um, but regardless... Do not let it trouble your consciences, maybe is the, the moral um, that I'm trying to uh, reiterate here, is that uh, we, under, we knew that there was a census, we have evidence that there was a census, and we also have evidence that at some point Quirinius was governor of Syria. Um, I'm not going to be able to give you the exact answer today <laughs> as to what the best way to resolve this uh, discrepancy is, but I will say time and time again, Luke himself has been proven correctly with his own Chronology, And that was what I was going to bring up in Acts 18. For a long time, there was a governor in Corinth that no one thought was uh, in rule by the time that Paul was there, and yet Luke includes him. And so for a long time, people thought, well, that guy wasn't in charge. And then it turns out, through archaeology and some excavation, they did find some papyrus that lets them know, um, or some manuscripts that let them know that, oh, that individual was actually in charge. So time and time again, Luke does... Uh, and is proven correctly when it comes to these historical chronologies. Uh, but if you ever hear someone around Christmas time say, well, don't you know there wasn't even a census uh, when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria because he wasn't even governor? 
that's usually what they're talking about. And again, there's a lot of, there's a lot that's been written, a lot, I could certainly point you to some very well-written articles on this. Um, and so if anyone has any other questions, feel free to talk to me after the Bible study. So now we're on to verse 3. We got through that conundrum. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, an interesting thing to note here is, does anyone know where uh, Galilee is compared to Bethlehem on a map? Galilee is north. And so this does not function as our English might function, which usually when we say, when we go up, we're going north, and when we go down, we're going south. I've never heard of anyone going up to the south for winter, right? Uh, or down to the north for summer. But in this day, when you went up, you were going to Jerusalem and getting closer to Jerusalem. And it was, yes, quite literally up because of elevation. So you always go up to Jerusalem and you always come down from Jerusalem. And so Bethlehem is located most close or much closer to Jerusalem, Bethlehem is, than Galilee. And so to go from Galilee to Bethlehem, you would go up. Even though that's reversed to how we would describe it today in English, um, in those days they described it in that sense, in that way. So Joseph goes up, or south, <laughs> from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage, the family line of David. Now this was about an 85-mile journey. In those days, that is, a, that is quite the trek with a, a pregnant woman that you're betrothed to riding alongside of you. Um, and so they, they embarked on quite the journey. Uh, it probably took them a week, maybe, uh, depending on how fast they're going. Could have been a, if they really were going quick, a couple, you know, four days or so. Um, but he went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, does anyone have a King James Version? Yes. What does it say there in verse 5? His bet yes. To be tasked with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Uh, I kind of think the writer of the King James Version probably didn't have a pregnant wife in his life because that word is mega there that they translate, you know. And that's not what you maybe want to say. But in the, in the Greek uh, manuscript, it's quite clear that what is meant is... Uh, she is expecting. So, yes, 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 that she's expecting. That she, her day, the days are coming, um, and her days currently are where she has, a, is expecting a child. And the reason why I bring that out is because in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, quite literally in the Greek, is while they were there, there was the day to be fulfilled for her to bear the child. Now, again, that's very wooden, so it, it makes perfect sense to say, and while they were there, the time came for her to give, give birth. But you have this idea that this day is being fulfilled for her to bear this child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, how is the son described? I think it's pretty interesting here. 
the son in verse uh, 7. I heard it. Yeah, firstborn. Now, I don't want to get too far into this, but you notice it doesn't say her only son. Yes, hint, hint. Um, Like I said, I don't want to get too much into it, but it says firstborn uh, son, uh, a prototechnon. That's a first child. A proto-pro, first technon child. So, a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And everyone's Christmas pageants are very happy that the ESV translates it that way. But that's not the word in Greek. And again, this isn't to cause anyone a burden in their conscience, but it's guest room. They didn't go to the Holiday Inn Express and they said, oh, we're all tapped out. And then they didn't go across the street to the Drury Inn and they said, nope, I'm sorry, can't help you. Um, they most likely went to a relative's house. And in those days, in, in Israel and Palestine, no matter how wealthy or how humble of means you came from, you'd always have a guest room in your home. You'd always have a guest room because of their uh, understanding of hospitality. There could be no, you would rather not have a home than to have a home where there was no guest room. Because if someone were to come to visit in those days with the reciprocal rights and, and, and the, their honor culture, um, it was very important that you could accommodate said person. So what does it mean that there's no room for them in the guest room? And that is because probably there were other relatives <laughs> who were coming to be registered, to be counted for this census. Uh, now, I've never seen a Christmas pageant or a, a, you know, a little... Uh, nativity play where the, the Mary and Joseph go, go up to Aunt, you know, June's house, and June goes, oh, I'm real sorry, dear, but we have no guest room available. So the ESV translates it in because, well, quite frankly, that's how m- most of us have heard it throughout our lives. Um, I think probably show of hands, every single one of us has predominantly heard it described as an inn. But it wasn't this unknown person who... Uh, you know, was mean or couldn't spare, but it probably was quite literally, it was so full with family, there was not any room. And so what's left? Well, the covered area for their animals. And it was probably connected to the house, um, or at least very close by. It was not, you know, a mile out into the wilderness, but it was probably very close by to what is probably in all likelihood a relative's home who probably had quite a few family members staying with them for this census. Um, And so you can kind of get a picture, and again, Christmas time, a little Christmas vacation sort of picture where you have everyone packed into a house and it's a little bit of chaos. And there's nothing that that person can do. They're not trying to be rude. It's just truly packed. And so the manger actually was a, a... Quite frankly, it worked out pretty well for Mary and Joseph. While it was not the most comfortable of settings, it was not um, maybe probably their top choice, it certainly was uh, a good, a a way to be sheltered and a way to uh, keep Mary safe, at least, during this birth. Uh, So, does anyone have any questions about the first seven verses of Luke 2? Yes. 
Yes, that, that's very true. So the comment was made that uh, in all likelihood there was probably a, a, a caravan maybe of sorts that traveled from Galilee or at least met them at some point along the way to the journey. But as you got closer to Bethlehem, there would have been quite a few relatives of David and other relatives of those who grew up in Bethlehem who were making that same journey to be counted, to be registered, because, well, they had to. When uh, Caesar says you do something, you don't say, I'm not sure about that. Um, you do it. So as they went, you're right, there was probably quite a, a group, um, I think, you know, again, doesn't make for the best Christmas card to see Mary and Joseph with this giant crowd. <laughs> you know, we often see them, you know, with just a single donkey by themselves in the wilderness. And there may have been a part of their journey, again, we don't want to, we don't want to say what the text doesn't say, but in our heads we have a lot of preconceived notions about what this Christmas uh, Eve this and into Christmas Day looked like that uh, some of which are shaped, admittedly, by our cultural uh, predispositions and maybe the Hallmark Company. Um, yeah, and again, I don't think it was, there was like a start date and everyone left at, you know, one time, but they probably did not keep the same pace. The question was made, you know, how could they have kept the same pace with uh, the others who may not have been, uh, you know, expecting a child at the time of their journey. And it, exactly, yeah, they would not be able to travel as fast um, as the others. And that's a great point, Ruth. All right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That being in this manger, in this stable, would have afforded them a little bit more privacy. Um, you know, in a day and age without uh, any sort of uh, pain relief, would have been probably, you know, welcomed not only by Mary and Joseph, but probably those who are nearby as well, that they had a little bit of privacy. But again, um, you know, we so often try to paint in our head this picture that looks like all those cards and nativity scenes that we have. And the important thing is to not look beyond what the text says, but to be honest, one, we don't know the exact, you know, we don't know, were there three or four women that helped Mary, for example? Um, or was she by herself at the time? There are certain details we just can't fill in but the whole point of bringing this out is that we don't just automatically fill that in with what we've always seen, you know, on Hallmark cards or in nativity plays. Not that those are bad. Do not, I'm not saying that before I really <laughs> cause a disturbance here. No. It's not that those are bad or that, you know, it's not, you know, like it's a, a poor idea to depict the wise men, even though they didn't come, you know, on Christmas Day. Uh, they came quite a while after. Um, you know, to depict the wise men in nativity scenes. That's not bad, but to understand that those don't dictate how we view Scripture. Rather, Scripture is how we view Scripture, and we're only given certain details that were given. All right. And then we get to, again, well-known words. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So a couple of things. I think it's really important to note that there is this great reversal happening here. To whom is the good shepherd proclaimed? Well, the shepherds out in the field. Uh, as shepherds, it was not a glamorous vocation. It was a needful one. Uh, it was an important one. But it was not a glamorous 
vocation. It was dirty. It often meant you slept outside in the elements. Um, probably did not smell all that, all that well. Um, not that anyone did in the first century. Um, but these are humble uh, workers. This is a blue-collar job. This is not a glitzy, glamorous thing. Um, it, to many in the first century, probably made a lot more sense that God would appear to Zechariah, for example, than that an angel of the Lord would appear to a bunch of shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. But you have this great reversal of the good shepherd being proclaimed to the shepherds in Bethlehem. And of course, what sort of shepherd from Bethlehem do we all know? David. Yeah. And you have this Davidic covenant, this promise that God makes, and here is the fulfillment. And where is it first proclaimed? Well, to the shepherds who are in the same town that David grew up in. And so you have, I mean, the imagery here is so deep. In some ways, it's maybe a, a little bit of a shame that it's so well known to us that at come Christmas Eve, we can sometimes gloss over it because we've all heard it 40, 50, 60 times and probably three or four times that year alone, depending on how many of those nativity plays or whatnot you may be attending. But to actually think about that imagery, that here they are out in a field, unassuming, unaware, doing a dirty, humble, lowly job, and an angel of the Lord appears to them. And I should say here that in the Greek, it is not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. Uh, in Hebrew, this is a, a Hebraicism that's often used in Hebrew. It would be the Hamalach Yahweh, the, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord illuminated them. Quite literally, quite literally in the Greek, it's around them lamp. That's the root word is lamp. No, but you can, I kind of like that, that there's, around them was this illumination, this lamp, that the glory of the Lord illuminated the sky, and they were fi filled with great fear. And in, in Greek, it's mega fear. I always like that. And mega fear. This was a big fear. This was not just, hey, wow, that's a little frightening, but it's like, oh, no, we're on, on our knees. Yeah, yes. They feared a great fear. Yeah. And the, the, the reiteration of it in the Greek is just to add emphasis. So they were afraid. Afraid, a big fear. <laughs> just to really drive home the point that this was not um, just kind of, your, oh, that was a little scary sort of moment. No, this was, they were terrified. And we continue reading... Uh, and the angel said to them, fear not. Good way to start when you have some terrified shepherds in front of you. And of course, that is the typical greeting that an angel, a messenger from the Lord, has to give. Um, say, the angel Gabriel said it to Mary as well. Um, it, typically, when you see an angel, the first reaction is to be you know, scared out of your mind. And then the angel has to say, well, fear not. I've not come to kill you. Yeah, oh, exactly, yeah. Uh, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the same word we use for gospel. We bring, I bring you a gospel. A gospel of great joy. 
that will be for all the people. Uh, I think it's interesting that they go from great fear to the angel's response of, no, have great joy. Uh, For unto you, or for this day to you, was born in the city of David, because this has happened. I think it's a historical present, but in reality, this has happened. Jesus has been born. Jesus was born, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Uh, and suddenly there was with the angel, and again, see, we, now all of a sudden becomes the angel, there was with him a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then the Charlie Brown Christmas special ends. <laughs> no, it's, I think, really uh, quite something to picture that sight. You imagine they had a great fear at seeing one angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. That multitude of heavenly hosts, an easier way to think about it, that's an army of angels. In the Old Testament, that's how it would be described. An army of angels. That's when we say, Lord God, Sabaoth, God of hosts. That is the God of angel armies. And that's what appears to these shepherds. I guess it's a good thing the first angel said, fear not. Because <laughs> I'd hate to think what their fear was like after the angel armies appeared all around them. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, if you turn to Luke 19, so we're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke, and you turn to Luke 19, verse 38. Luke 19, verse 38. We read in the triumphant entry uh, that they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. I think it's so interesting that at the birth of Jesus, what is the proclamation of the angels? Glory to God in the highest. And upon his entry into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, but an entry that starts, of course, Holy Week, the week in which he would be crucified, put to death. What is the declaration that is said by his disciples? Glory to God in the highest. Um, I think Luke does that quite intentionally. That there, there is an understanding that not only is this great day in Luke 2 truly magnificent, but so too is that triumphant entry. Yes, was there a question? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Yes. Yes. No, that, so the comment was made that uh, it's amazing that these shepherds who had this great fear, this, they were afraid, the mega fear, they feared the mega fear, <laughs> those same shepherds had an, a message to not only give to us, but to go and tell Mary. <laughs> and even those who are uh, witnessing the birth, probably the relatives of Joseph there in Bethlehem, um, and then so too that they were able to, and we're going to get to that in just a minute with Verse 15, what happened when the angels went away? That even though they feared this great fear, they immediately went to Christ. They went to behold this child. Um, And you can imagine just what sort of comments they probably had amongst one another on the way there. Because this happens, and then the angels went away into heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You can imagine just what sort of shock and awe they must have been in in that moment. To not only see that great light, to not only see an angel of the Lord, but the whole angel armies, and then to hear glory to God in the highest and peace be on earth with those to whom God is pleased. To hear this message of good good news, great joy, um, I think the temptation would probably be fair to say would have been for them to think that that was the greatest thing they were going to see happen that day. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, so the, the comments made that they, they weren't the people waiting for this. And, and absolutely they were waiting for this. And Zechariah brings that up, that, that you've redeemed your people who are waiting for your salvation in the Benedictus. Um, but I would say, I think that's why it's all the more special that the angels appeared to humble, blue-collar shepherds. Because yes, um, they probably heard every Saturday on Shabbos, on Sabbath, you know, wait for the Messiah, wait for the Messiah. But the reality is there's probably those who felt like, well, that's just what the teachers say to get us to come back each week, sort of thing. You know, um, when's that actually going to happen? These were not the, 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 the A-plus students in rabbinical school who these angels appeared to. These were not experts in the law, um, as they're not Pharisees, not Sadducees. These are pretty humbly, humble, lowly shepherds. Um, and I think one of the things that bears that out is we don't know any of their names. <laughs> it wasn't like Shepherd Jacob said to you know Shepherd Abraham over here, let's go see. No, this was the every man. This was the everyday sort of individual. These weren't, uh, like I said, again, those getting A-pluses in rabbinical school who have been studying and, and, and transcribing um, and and copying manuscripts day in and day out for year on year and year. Uh, so yes, while they were waiting for it, I think it's a, a great reminder that um, this is the people of God, not the cream of the crop, so to speak, which we could be tempted to make in our own Christian piety feelings, you know, that, well, I'm the one who's in Bible study, for example, every Sunday. Now, don't take that as an insult, of course. It's wonderful to be in Bible study. But God comes 
to all of us. And uh, while these shepherds are insignificant, maybe individually, obviously collectively, they are the individuals to whom God himself chose to make this revelation known on Christmas Day. Yes. <laughs> no, that's a great comment, but the comment was made that it's amazing, and we'll, I haven't quite got to verse 15, but we're, we, I think there's a good segue into it, that the comment was made that they say immediately, let us go uh, to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, that the Lord has made known to us. Not that the angel made known to us, but rather that the Lord himself has made known to us. And I agree, it must have been, I mean, truly a spectacular, perhaps incredibly fear-causing sort of event. But they still were immediately um, able to confess that this is what God has revealed to us, that the Lord has revealed to us. So verse 15 when the angels went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us, as we just talked about. And again, there's that idea that made known, that revelation is that ultimate wisdom. There, there, is, that, there is faith in that knowledge, that those shepherds had faith, and that's why they went, and they wanted to go see it. Um, and you notice they don't say, Let us go see if this thing has happened. They don't say, let's go check to see if the angels were right. No, let's go see this thing that has happened, that the Lord has made known to us. There is a confidence, which is very appropriate in considering what our theme um, today is with our fourth core value here at St. Paul's, having confidence in Christ. But there is a confidence in their knowledge, a confidence in their faith, that what the Lord has made known to them, what he has revealed to them, would be truly there. And so is awe-causing as this angelic proclamation must have been. Uh, I often would have loved to see a snapshot of those shepherds' faces when they actually go into Bethlehem and find a newborn baby in a manger. Not that they doubted, but to actually behold then what not only was made known to them, but what they could truly see. Um, and surely it would have been and we read, and we'll continue to read, um, probably a moment of great joy. That the, the light that they saw with the angels would be surpassed by the light of the world. And the life that they saw there in the manger would eventually be surpassed by their own life in that child's sacrifice. Now, do we know if they understood all that then and there? I, I would say, in all likelihood, no way. <laughs> But the reality is that's what God was going to do for those shepherds, and that's what God was going to do for the whole world. Uh, and they went with haste. I guess that makes sense, right? You wouldn't go slowly. They don't meander on into Bethlehem. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Uh, and how do we know that Mary and Joseph, for example, were not alone in that manger with the baby Jesus? Well, here's a really great example in the next verse. And all who heard it, not when Joseph heard this, 
or when Mary and Joseph and only, but when all who heard this, and they probably were not quiet about it. I'd have to imagine they were not, they were probably going around knocking on people's doors. Uh, when, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Uh, I think, again, we see another example. We talked about this a little a few weeks ago. Mary's faith is incredible. We saw that in her reaction and how it contrasted Zechariah's reaction to the angelic proclamation that you would be with child. That she says, as the Lord says, let it be so. And here you hear quite wondrously, quite stunningly, this proclamation from the angels that, or from the shepherds, that these angels appeared to them. And they said that unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And immediately everyone else, while they may wonder, could even go as far to say perhaps doubt, what does Mary do? She treasures these things. She holds them dear. She keeps them close in her heart. All right. We are at 1020. Are there any questions we have this morning? Yes. Absolutely. That, that's a great point. That, uh, the comment was made that the, what was reiterated by the shepherds was that angelic proclamation, not the shepherds' own spin. Hey, you're not going to believe what's happened. But rather, this child who's lying in a manger with swathing cloths, an angel told us that he is Christ the Lord. Um, again, I, you, in some ways it's almost unfortunate that it is so uh, ingrained in our heads that we can sometimes gloss over this experience, because we've heard it every Christmas Eve. Um, and of course, there are no shortage of, of distractions come Christmas time. There's no shortage of things that are on our mind, even when we're sitting in church on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day, um, whether it's dinner or family in town or <laughs> the decorations or if it's snowing or what. But I think it's a really good chance in the middle of June on a hot, humid day to be reminded of how special that day, that night uh, this moment is not only in the history um, of God's people in Israel, but in the history for all people. You notice what the angels say that this child, uh, it will be a, this child will be good news of great joy for all people. And that includes you and I here today. Any further questions? I want to stop there because that's a good kind of stopping point, and then we'll get the presentation of Jesus. Uh, starting next week with Luke 2, verse 21, uh, in the temple. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I, I'm sure there were those looks, you know. Um, the, the comment was made, you know, perhaps with a lot of relatives being there, maybe they were able to escape some of the questions that might arise from Joseph's betrothed being uh, with child and yet uh, still a virgin. 
Uh, and we, talk, again, talked about it with the enunciation, right, that uh, you can imagine um, what people might have said, what people said behind closed doors, what people might have said to her face. Um, but, yeah, we don't know what happened with Joseph's family in Bethlehem, how they received that news. We don't know how they told them that news. Yeah. Yeah, it may, it may have been a little convenient in that sense to be in, in the animal stalls uh, for a little while. All right, well, why don't we close with a word of prayer? Dear Lord, we, we come to you this morning uh, remembering the great joy, that good news of great joy that is for all people, that uh, our Savior was not only born in a manger in Bethlehem, but that little boy would, would grow up to be the perfect sacrifice that we ourselves could never be, to forgive our sins and to ultimately give us ever, everlasting life. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to, to rest securely, to stand confidently in his salvation, that we'd never take for granted the great joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right.